0: Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Candice kreisman mowry and this is Beyond Therapy. Welcome back to Beyond Therapy, everyone. Today we're having what I think is probably a pretty unique conversation. We're going to be talking about creating clinician-centered mental health group practice spaces. So we're gonna really focus on education, diversity, equity, inclusion, and some actionable steps that folks can take to make their workplaces more emblematic of these values but also what folks who are looking for work in group practice settings can do to ensure that their values are represented and that spaces are safe for them, particularly if they are from marginalized groups. I'm very excited to be joined today by Mona Noor, she, her. Uh, She's a licensed clinical mental health counselor and adjunct professor who's held numerous roles over the past 20 years in consulting, counseling, advising, administration, and teaching at the university and community college levels. Her research and special interests include belonging, bicultural identity development and integration, student and employee engagement, and consulting in various settings. She has served as a higher education administrator and consultant to revamp college programs, specifically regarding culturally centered curriculum development, policy, and procedures aimed at fostering student development both academically and psychosocially. Dr. Noor currently owns a group private teaching practice focused on providing mental health access to historically marginalized and minoritized communities. Welcome, Dr. Noor. Thank you, Dr. Mowry. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm excited. Excited to have a conversation with um, both you as a professional and you as a human being. So glad you're here. This is such an interesting topic, I feel like, um, and I haven't really heard anyone talk about it, uh, is this sort of idea of really creating an intentional professional environment for counselors. So I wonder if you can maybe just describe what your private practice looks
1: like sort of structurally and functionally. Sure. Yeah. Um, So the, the practice itself, you know, I can't really talk about the structure of the practice without talking about the structure of other settings I've been in. Um, I've been in school settings and community college settings and um, university and uh, other private practices as well. Um, And also just gone through life, you know, been a student in the classroom, you know, from preschool on. And, um, and then obviously, you know, you know, the, the high school jobs and, um, college jobs and even post-college, um, in corporate world, and the settings all seem to be quite similar in the sense that they're really hierarchical generally in our society, um, where this is kind of this, this top person, um, you know, where there's a leader and that leader is always at the top. And um, and then we can all picture those little branches that come down from that, and then you know it gets kind of like a triangular type shape, um, and you have these people, so called, at the bottom, right? And those are the folks in the trenches, and then this person at the top, or these you know a few people at the top, that are kind of dictating, you know, and kind of can put the hammer down and say, this is how it's going to go, and and it's for the it's for the company, you know, and it's not personal, it's business. And, um, you know, you had mentioned in the bio that I've, I also focus on identity integration. I don't think we can look at um, our professional settings without understanding that we're also people. So I really appreciated off the bat. that You said you wanted to talk to me as a professional, but also as a, as a person. Um, and so our, our practice is really set up with those things in mind. Um, it's clinician centered. Uh, We are not a client-centered practice because each clinician is already coming in as a superstar and they're really focused on their clients. Um, What we found missing is that, um, you know, all of us have come in, all of us in the practice, and there's now 24 of us, including staff, have come into the practice with the very exact same experiences um, that I just described. Um, I think that's something that most of us can relate to of you know, trying to figure out what the people at the top want. And, um, and we've really flipped that in, in a sense, not exactly, but in some sense where the clinicians are really at the center and coming in with the idea of what is it that they need in order to run their own practices or in order to grow as people interpersonally and to grow professionally in the ways that they want. And so they really dictate how the practice is run in terms of, you know, just just by letting us know what their needs are. And in order for clinicians to tell us what their needs are, they have to feel safe, so to speak, and they have to know that they matter and they have to know that their voices matter. And so generally speaking, that's the essence of what our practice is about. Now, there are a lot of different components to it, but the, the you know, the kind of guiding force is what do you need?
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so if we're drawing a comparison between sort of standard corporate hierarchical structures and this more clinician-centered model, it sounds like it's um, at least one aspect of that is a a different sort of distribution of power, so it doesn't all reside at the top. And then another aspect of that is like rather than it being just this sort of worker bee mentality where it's like, everybody's the same. It's just, you're doing your specific job. There's this aspect of bringing
1: in intersectionality and identity. Yeah, very much. So we have a very circular structure. So where I talked about this person at the top, you know, I'm, I'm not that person. Um, I'm not, you know, I tell them, I'm not sitting at the top on my throne, you know, queen of the castle, and um, deciding what goes down here. And it's really hard for clinicians to believe that at first. And so even in our hiring practices, they have to pick out, you know, if, if someone interviews with me, um, which I really consider just a conversation um, and a sharing of values, that's how I see interviews. Um, if if they're talking with me and I feel like, oh, you know, I think that we could really support this person and I think there's like culture ad here as well. Um, again, notice I didn't say a good fit. I don't believe in, mm-hmm. in good mm-hmm. fit. Um, that's a whole other thing we can get to if you want. <laughs> um, but if I feel like there's a culture ad and that we're able to support the person, the ways that they need, and they're able to articulate that, then I ask them to read through the bios and pick out a couple of folks um, from our website, a couple of other clinicians that they want to meet with. And so they they meet with those folks individually and um, and and that is a way that they start to learn right away that your voice matters. Um, you get to choose who you meet with. And also it's a way that the clinicians in the practice recognize that their voice and their lenses matter because we have a collaborative hiring process where every single person, that makes contact in our practice with the person who might be interested. They might not be afterwards, but they might be interested in joining us. Um, that they, we all have to have a unanimous agreement that this, that this person wants to come in. And this person also has to agree obviously as well. And so that lets everyone all the way around know you matter. Your lens matters. What you see matters, your perspective Um, even your perceptions matter. And so that's, that's part of how we center um, and, and show we operationalize. um, We value you, and you are important. And what you have to say and the way you see the world and your insight is important. And I believe that you're able to see things that maybe I don't. And so that's how we that's how we um, really center folks in the practice. That's one of the ways. It's one of the ways just from go. So so if you picture almost like a Venn diagram, there would be um, staff and there would be clinicians. Um, and then somewhere in there is also going to be clients as well. Um, there's going to be education. Um, and all of those are almost like a Venn diagram in the center. And I'm kind of the circle that goes almost through all of those um, circles, you know, and I, I just kind of go around it. And my role, I see it as being really protective of the culture and also being accessible to the different components of the practice. Um, but I don't really run the practice, so to speak.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm curious, like the uh, range of experience levels that you have in your
1: clinicians? Yeah, so we're a teaching practice. So that means that we have a lot of teachers. So whether it's been um, folks who teach in higher education, um, folks who have been former school teachers, um, education is something that's a really core component of, of what we do in our practice. And so we also have interns and practicum students. And, um, So the range is going to be people who are brand new to the field, who might even have a business background and have just, you know, had a change into um, the the mental health field or people who just went straight through from undergrad and then, you know, recently graduated um, who are now associate level uh, clinicians all the way up to clinicians who have over 25 years of experience. And it's about 50-50, I would say, as far as fully licensed and um, more seasoned clinicians and then um, more associate-level clinicians and and interns um, and practicum students. And even the associate-level clinicians, many uh, many of those clinicians have other life experiences. Like I said, we have a couple of folks right now who are former school teachers are associate clinicians, but have this other lived experience as far as professionally as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm interested. I mean, that's so cool to hear that there is such a, a range of experience. I'm wondering, just from my experience of supervising interns slash uh, associates level licensees, uh, is like there's maybe not across the board, but a general theme of low confidence. (laughs) So this sense of the only way you can be a good counselor is to have all this experience. So as I think about that mapping onto this very collaborative, equal partnership sort of model, I'm curious, how do your younger, younger in the field clinicians, uh, Respond to that if they are bringing a similar sort of anxiety, or what does that look like from a
1: supervisory standpoint? Yeah, that's a I'm really glad you asked that question. Um, we have a we have kind of a motto that that organically emerged in the practice over the last, you know, early on, I would say, um, and that was own your knowledge. If you're here, you're a superstar, and I'm. and so the way that we, again, operationalize that is by having a mentoring system that's really solid in place. So we have a person that um, supports the practice whose sole role is to focus on, um, on education and also on interconnection. And so that person's role is to help set up a mentoring system. And so they have a mentoring survey that they've put together, and it's short. I think it's five questions. And they send it out right away when someone starts as part of the onboarding process of essentially what kind of um, mentor they would want to be and what kind of mentoring they would want. So every single person in the practice, including the interns, by the way, are both a mentor and a mentee to someone. So the interns are mentors to the practicum students. The practicum students help onboard the new clinicians at any level as far as teaching them how to use the EHR system, for example. Um, teaching them how to do the phone consultation, what some of the practice policies are. So they even are a part of that early on to help them feel confident at, a, at the earliest stages of their um, mental health you know, counseling development. Um, and then the um, interns have a, at least one mentor who's an associate level clinician. The associate level clinicians have seasoned clinicians who are their mentors, and um, and then all the seasoned clinicians have at least two work buddies. That's what we call. And you know, it's it was so heartwarming to me the first time I looked at our EHR in our EHR system, and I looked on our calendar, and I was just looking at a calendar for the week, and I saw all these little spots on the calendar where, you know, the mentors and mentees were getting together uh, for an hour or for 30 minutes or even for a couple of hours, some of them, um, just to, some of them in person and some of them, you know, virtually, and they just connect. And I started saying, wait, is this a thing? Are they actually doing this? And I would look in the weeks ahead and they have like a, a set schedule with their mentors and mentees. And so when you are, you know, to, back to your question, Candace when you are I think when any of us are sharing knowledge with others, we start to realize how much we actually know. And in that, there's an increased confidence. And also in that is a sense of service that we are, you know, we we get into a place of we are supporting someone else. We can see in front of us where we were at one point. And just by sharing that knowledge, it shows how much we've actually learned and how much our our um, awareness about ourselves or a our counselor identity or a specific topic or a particular process, how that has expanded from the shoes we were, you know, almost quite literally in that we see in front of us as we're mentoring someone.
0: Very cool. Well, I wonder if we can pivot a little bit and if you can maybe share a little bit about your own journey into this group practice and maybe what has influenced your model.
1: Sure. So, uh, you know, these and invention is born out of necessity, you know, and I grew up in a small little town in rural North Carolina that at the time was the home of the Ku Klux Klan. Now my parents did not know that when they, when they moved there, my parents emigrated from Egypt and at young ages, um, as adults, but, you know, young, they had just been married a couple of years and uh, they had $50 and got on a plane and landed in JFK. And, you know, that's a, there's a separate story behind that, but essentially they were driving down. Uh, they, they lived in Philadelphia for a minute and that's where I was born. So when I was just a year old, they were driving down interstate 95 and um they saw a sign for this, for this little town. And my mom said, Oh, I think I saw in one of these professional journals, my dad's a physician. She said, I think I saw that they needed a urologist in this town, uh, which obviously is my dad's well is my dad's field. And uh, so they stopped and they found out there was a little hospital there. and they sure enough did need a urologist. And so they, you know, they went down to Florida for a little short trip and stopped on the way back and had a few meetings at the Howard Johnson's there. That's what it was back in the seventies. And, um, and so they stayed the sign that they did not see or the many signs they did not see is where it said, you know, this is Klan country. This is home of the Ku Klux Klan. They did not see those until much later, Uh, but I was old enough to read and did not understand what those signs were. And I have vivid memories of, um, of people in white hoods and, you know, trigger warning, it's it was ugly. Okay. So that was, um, that was not great (laughs) at all. And I'm, you know, I would look at my brown skin, and I would look at my my big curly hair, and, um, and I would look at who was being targeted. And I was trying to figure out what my place was, and all of that. Um, Am I am I a target? Am I not? You know, I got a lot of the questions um, that most bicultural people get or people of Um, mixed heritage possibly get as well, or certainly get is, what are you? And that led to uh, probably a lifelong quest of trying to answer that question. And I became an identity person at an early age. We didn't call it that then, and I didn't know what it was, but it was certainly a lot of reflection and wondering and confusion. And that carried on into the classroom, that carried on into My social groups. Um, I spent a lot of time in theater and I found kind of a home there for a minute in high school. And, um, and I just, I was trying to just figure out my place in the world and in all of the little spaces, um, including in my own home, you know, because like many bicultural folks and we didn't call it bicultural at the time, you know, but someone from a recent immigrant background um, I was trying to figure out how do I fit into my own culture? How do I fit into my culture here? Um, what is it like when I go to Egypt? You know, I didn't feel in, quite in place there either. Um, they would try to figure out what are you, you know, um, because I looked Western from my dress or my hair or whatever. So um, it, it, it carried on later into adulthood, into workplaces, into college settings. And it, it really didn't stop. And I just turned 49. And uh, and so I I was just having a hard time answering that question. And it seemed that the people around me were also confused about what my place was. And so what would happen is that there was this almost, um, I think, a combination of trying to figure that out and, and prove myself in some way, as well as what seems to be quite common with people who have parents who have immigrated here, this uh, kind of drive for success and this need to show like, yes, I can, um, I can do, I can achieve. So I wasn't a very high achiever at a young age, but when I went to the work world, I was a really hard worker. Um, And I started to realize that I could interview really well. I could, I could become well-liked easily. Um, I could be a superstar if I needed to be, um, I could be innovative and people really liked that, uh, as far as employers. Um, but if there was ever a time where I would push back on a policy or I would question, um, a supervisor, uh, which I have a big mouth and tend to use it, then all of a sudden there would be pushbacks. It was like, we like you when you fit this package. We like you when you act this way. We like you when we can exploit you. And that's really what it was. It was, I because of my deep questioning, I think growing up, and if you're into Enneagrams, I'm, a, I'm an Enneagram type four, which is no surprise based on, you know, what I just shared. I'm not seeing myself reflected in the world around me. Um, I really, I really struggled with this idea of, you um, of of, try, of wanting to be different and knowing that I already was and there was nothing I could do about it, but also wanting to be accepted. And those two things didn't seem to line up. And there was also this natural tendency to question a lot because I had been questioned so much. So I would question other people you know, when thinking I just want to know. I wasn't thinking that I'm challenging them. I'm thinking we're all on the same page of wanting to, focus on this product or focus on this program or whatever it was that I was, you know, whatever setting I was in. And that just wasn't always the case. There was a lot of like, uh, you don't question me. You don't question me. Who do you think you are? You know, and then there was the backlash. Um, And so then I try to play nice again if I could. And um, I just kind of hold out. You know, I just I, I could never play by the rules, but for so long. And so that that eventually in my older adult life or my more recent adult life translated into being in settings where um, in, for example, peer consultations where I found that if, you know, I I knew at, you know, later in life, I I learned like, okay, you know, just, just don't bring your stuff to the, (laughs) don't bring, don't, don't question anybody that you're not feeling completely safe with, you know, and started to kind of use my sorting machine a little bit better. Like, yeah, that you can trust that person you can't trust. And I would um, notice in peer consultations that I could not bring my cases to, to peer consultation because the people around me in my practices that I had been in before or the settings I'd been in before would not understand my client population. I could understand my client population, most of whom about 80 to 90% of whom were bicultural. And I knew that the the clinicians around me did not understand. I think I tried it one time and and it went awry. You know, There were just strange kind of diagnoses that they would, they just couldn't conceptualize what was happening with them. Looks like you were going to say something, Kim. I
0: was going to yeah. add, I think, kind of down
1: that line, what were they missing? Mm. They were missing that point of what I was saying about the Enneagram 4. of My clients did not see themselves reflected in the world around them. And so they were having to figure out who they were, this identity construction alone, essentially. And there would be behavioral or emotional reactions in response to that. And so there was, there was, um, you know, I heard things. And also I would hear this, by the way, for African-American and black identifying cisgender women specifically as well, um, where there's this, oh, it's, it sounds like bipolar disorder to me, or, oh, it sounds like borderline personality disorder. I heard a lot of borderline personality disorder for bicultural college cis women quite a bit. And for me, I'm like, wait a second here. Psychosocially, just in general, this person is in a society where they are trying to individuate from their families. And at the same time, they come from a collectivist culture. And so there is some confusion there that's already adding to this split identity within themselves of I'll use myself as an example of being Egyptian and being American. And I'm trying to figure out how to hyphenate those things, those different parts of myself. And so, you know, what I see as Egyptian, I'm sometimes fighting against, you know, AKA my parents, right? And I can get really angry about. Um, And then what I see as American, sometimes I can really be fighting against and get really angry about. And just because I'm angry and I'm 19 years old and I'm Egyptian, and I'm American and I'm angry, it doesn't mean that I'm borderline, you know, and I never got that, you know, that slapped onto me to my knowledge, you know, but I'm using myself as an example, but I would see this where they would talk about other clinicians would talk about their bicultural clients that way in peer consultation. And I was like, Ooh, I'm not bringing my folks to this, you know? And so I would challenge some of that a little bit gently. Um, And, and then it was like, oh, she knows a lot of things, you know? And so then I would do consultations for folks individually. I'm not, I I mean, several hours a week, like, and, you know, by the way, I'm seeing 24 to 30 people a week during this time as well. And then gladly doing consultation because I am all about the education and I'm, you know, individually as well. And yet, there, I did not feel that there was anyone to support me in any of the ways. So, you know, I was, I felt that it's nice to, it's nice to be respected clinically, right? For people to feel, you know, okay, you have some knowledge that you can share. Um, it's also very activating after a while, not only because of just my own lived experiences. But also because I'm tired, I'm, I am a person, like you said earlier, <laughs> and I've been seeing clients all day and I'm a little bit tired now and we're day in and day out of these consultations. Um, it did help with my own self-efficacy where I was like, oh, maybe I do know some things. I didn't realize I knew anything special there, you know, so much. Um, but yeah, so that, that happened. But then also I started having a really long wait list and it got to the point where it was about eight months long. And I didn't like that. I just ethically, I don't like having a wait list. Um, But I realized that they were having a hard time finding other clinicians who not only were bicultural, but also specialized in bicultural identity. So I said, you know what? How about if I start a practice where the education is really strong? And so it's two main things. The education is really strong. And also that we have a strong focus on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And we actually operationalize those things because I had been in places where they, you know, I would be hired and I would be the only person of color in that, you know, in that particular setting. And they would say, oh, we're diverse. So, you know, note to self, by the way. Hiring, you yeah, I'm not, a, I don't consider myself black. I identify as Egyptian American, but, you know, hiring a black therapist and putting them on your website is not, you know, diversity. Hiring several clinicians of color or clinicians from minoritized groups or marginalized groups or queer identifying clinicians, for example, and putting them on your website does not mean inclusion. And so that was the other thing is that I had been in settings where and I would say something like that. So they would hire more diverse, you know, they would have a more diverse uh, practice or setting or, you know, agency, um, but did not practice inclusion. And so I realized, okay, now there's just a bunch of us here feeling siloed. (laughs) I mean, there's not, there's still not this sense of community. There's still this kind of, white, straight, cis, heteronormative, um, um, center. And then there's the rest of us. And I said, I don't want that. I don't want that. I, I want to shift, change all of that up. And, um, where our, our, you know, everything that we do is we can, if somebody asked me, how do you, how did you, um, operationalize equity, that I can speak to that specifically in concrete terms. How do you operationalize um, inclusion or belonging? The diversity part was was easy for me. I know it's not easy for everyone, um, but how do you do that? You know, then I can actually I can actually say words and, and point to specific things that we do daily that show that and then the education piece as well as providing really strong training in our practice that is ongoing, that is weekly. Um, So that was probably more than you asked.
0: (laughs) No, that's great. Um, I'm thinking, because the likelihood that a lot of the people listening are going to take this information and then start a group practice is I would imagine a small majority. And I think the people who might be looking for work and weighing what their options are and what their expectations could or should be that feels like that's probably a pretty big number. So I'm thinking about um, like my experience in community mental health and knowing that like, obviously my experience is going to be different because I am kind of like the most privileged set of identities in the counseling field that you can have. Right. So like white, straight female. Um, So I'm connecting with the corporate structure, you know, that created a lot of frustration among counselors. So business decisions that were very separate from what was clinically appropriate, that being one of the manifestations, lack of mentorship, aside from whatever free supervision you could get for your licensure, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I mean, there were just so many places where it was isolating where uh, it was burnout central, you know, just the sheer number of clients and the conditions that you would have to see them under, that sort of thing. Are there any other kind of particulars that you feel like a, an actually inclusive and actually equitable group practice or any kind of practice, whether it's a private environment or community based place? what are some of the features that a new clinician might look for to feel if that, if they're going to be represented in that practice, if they're going to have a voice, what are some of those features?
1: Yeah. I love that question too, because most of us are not going to be, you know, wild enough to go start a group practice. It's no small feat, right? Um, you know, so when we have someone that reaches out to us, And um, that, you know, we, we meet with, I tell them, look, look at your other options. You know, here are the questions that I would, I really encourage you to ask as you're looking around, feel free to even ask me about places where you're talking to and, and, you know, and I'll, I'll let you know who to talk with there. I'm very transparent about that. Um, I don't feel that I have to, you know, try to snag somebody if I can and that I'm competing with other practices. I, I really focus on being truly authentic about who we are and very transparent about who we are. And it's it's truly just a conversation about values. And so you know, I say all of that to say that I really encourage people who are interviewing or who are looking to join a group practice to really almost do like an acceptance and commitment therapy life map on themselves, um, like a professional and personal life map on themselves of identifying what their values are. So if you are out there and you're, you're thinking, okay, I want to, you know, I want to leave agency or I'm getting ready to graduate, or I've been a school counselor and I want to, you know, join a private practice part-time and do some like you know, some deeper clinical work or longer term clinical work, you know, whatever situation you might be in where you want to join a group practice, really think about what your values are. And, and don't abandon them. And when you are when you are talking with um, when you are talking with group practice owners, or you know, the group practice, whoever it is that you're meeting with there, ask them specifically about those values that you have and how they show up so sit down with a piece of paper write down what your values are what it is that are your non-negotiables what you can't not do what you can't not have what you can't not be you know and be real with yourself about how you want to show up in a workplace and don't compromise on those things and then formulate questions around those values that help you learn, you know, if those things are happening at that workplace, and then don't be afraid to ask them. You know, the thing is, is that a practice that aligns with whatever it is that's important to you, they don't mind being asked those questions, they invite those questions. And, and just as much as you want to be seen a practice owner or, or any other member of the practice, they they love to feel seen too. And so when you come to a practice owner, and you say, Hey, you know, tell me about A, B, and C, and whatever those questions are that you have that are formulated around your values. And if it really aligns with that, that practice, you're going to see that person light up, And they're going to say, oh, yeah, let me tell you about it. And they're going to have a sense of pride about sharing how exactly what you just asked is something that they can deliver on and then pay attention to the way they're answering those questions. If they're lighting up, then, hey, you're going to feel that spark in you, too. So listen to your insides, folks, (laughs) listen to your insides and what it's telling you. It's like dating, right? Like Don't try to talk yourself into this person. You know, you have options. At the very, very least, you could start your own solo practice by yourself. You know, and at, at least you know what you're getting into a little bit. You know, a little bit. There are folks out there that can coach you on that. You don't have to start your own group practice. Um, but yeah, I, I would just say get clear about what you value, answer your question or ask your questions um, to to the practice, and then pay attention to how they're answering those questions. What you notice. Um, what you see, what you hear, and then also pay attention to what you're you're feeling as they're answering those questions.,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I think that's such good advice, especially, yeah, I mean, just period. I think it's just good advice to encourage folks to tune in and also what you were mentioning about how if you're asking values based questions of a potential employer, you're absolutely right. They want to talk about what they're doing in those domains, um, so. if if that lowers the sense of risk at all for someone to ask maybe a direct or um, sensitive seeming question, I think that's great. Right.
1: Sure. Like what, what are your, you know, what kind of practices do y'all have that promote inclusivity? That's a, that is a valid question. If somebody can't answer that question, red flags, red flags, red flags. If that's something that you value, If that's something that's really important to you, uh, which our hope is that it is, right? If it is, regardless of what demographics you identify with, um, if you're a straight white cisgender, um, you know, man, then that doesn't mean that the the inclusivity isn't important to you. You know, in our field, if you're a straight white cisgender woman, you know, which is the almost eighty percent, seventy-five to eighty percent, I think, of our field then that doesn't mean that those values aren't important to you, you know, and so you can ask those questions too. So yeah, whatever, you know, whatever is important to you, not just professionally, but, but personally, interpersonally, especially as well. And by the way, those are all integrated. We are not, you know, siloed in those areas as well because you are a person that's showing up in a professional environment. So think about those things and, and ask them, Um, It is their job to answer to them and also really go into their websites and read their bios. How do they present themselves? How transparent are they? Um, Does the does the feel of the website really align with, you know, do you feel does does something in you light up when you're when you're looking at their website? And if a practice isn't putting, if you're joining even a mid-sized practice, if they're not investing in their website, then they're not investing in how they and how they present themselves to the community. And and that to me is a red flag. That to me is a red flag because it really doesn't from a practice perspective, it really doesn't cost that much to to sit with a web designer and get your website aligned with what it is that's important to you. You know, maybe if it's like a one or two person practice, sure, maybe that could be a little bit harder, but even then, like, you don't have to have like banging SEOs and all of that necessarily to begin with. But, you know, how are you how are you presenting yourself? What is the imagery on there? What's the language that's being used? Those are those are all important things, I think, in today's world.
0: And I think they're super practical, too. You know, I mean, those are really concrete things. Um, Let's role play. (laughs) <laughs> so, okay. So you're you advising me, a new counseling master's student grad, Dr. Noor. I have got student loans that make me cry. Um, I have zero experience, and every single job posting I read says you need experience to get experience here, right? So um, I love this whole values idea and like rent.
1: Because there's that. <laughs> right. You want to go try to explain to your landlord that um, that you're looking for a value. Base. Can I pay you? In values? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So so tell me what the dilemma is there, because clinicians are in pretty hot demand right now.
0: OK, so maybe it's that I don't know that. Maybe I don't know that they're, you know, the ball really kind of is in my court in terms of the level of need. Um, Just the general sense of uh, real slash perceived scarcity, you know, is like, how do we honor that space where someone may really have a sense of I need a job yesterday that seems to be at odds with having any real sense of choice?
1: Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. Well, you know. So, Candace, first of all, please call me Mona. Um, so, <laughs> so Candace, I have a sense that one day you're going to be a Dr. Mallory, but I don't know. <laughs> That's the sense that I, I didn't either. I didn't know that was happening.
0: I was the oh, doctor yeah.
1: or the Mallory. <laughs> yeah. So, so here's what I would say. Where did you do your internship? I did my internship
0: at um, Oasis, first episode psychosis clinic.
1: Okay. All right.
0: And what was your experience there? Amazing. had a super supportive supervisor um, who came from like a really different sort of background from me, both as a person and clinically. Um, It was a tight knit group. So yeah, I just felt really supported. I got to see some really cool clients with issues that I think, uh, tightened up my confidence quickly because they were you know they were really struggling.
1: Mhm mhm-, yeah, and that's really important work too. And so it sounds like you you loved what you were doing there. You had a great relationship with your supervisor. What are your options as far as possibly working in in that space at that particular site? I mean, I guess I could email the supervisor and find out <laughs> it sounds like you had a great relationship. I would encourage you to to ask about any openings that they have at that site if you really loved your experience there and also say, hey, if there aren't any openings, I know you're really well connected supervisor. Who would you recommend? I trust your guidance. I I trust your insight. You know me. Where do you think would align with, you know, with the work and the experience that I have? Okay, again, so
0: these, um, this is happening again. It happened with my last guest too, where this turns into my personal therapy and I don't stop it. <laughs> I don't stop Let's it. Let's do it. Let's go. You know, what, <laughs> it's so interesting because like that suggestion, why don't you ask your supervisor, was nowhere on my radar because I had this sense coming from, um, uh, I won't, I mean, I won't say a poor background. I would say like a, a socioeconomically disadvantaged background. Was that the only way you succeed is if you do it completely by yourself.
1: Mm hmm. So yeah. And what is that based on that we capitalistic know? Capitalistic,
0: white supremacy, individualism. Uh, yes. All of that. Yeah. And All I, I had that. no understanding of that piece. Um, so I think even just I'm, I'm hoping that if there's anybody out there who's got the same sort of mindset is, I mean, what a game changer to even think about. Mm-hmm. Honoring the relationship that you might have had with us, acknowledging that there is in fact a
1: relationship there—you weren't just like free labor. No, you look. Let me tell you this: we are not meant to. Let me let me tell you something. Okay? Tell me. <laughs> something, something that you already know, soon to be Doctor Cap- Mowry. Yeah. Um, So here, here's what I know for sure, right? In Oprah line, is that we were not meant to be in this world alone. We were not meant to be in this world siloed. We cannot as humans survive on an island by ourselves as much as we, especially some of us introverts (laughs) would love to go do that some days for just a minute. We can only survive for so long. Like it's just not how we're made. We're not that kind of species. And I'm, and so really take that to heart. You you know people and you know people because that is your way of survival. We have to know one another. And so networking is a word that seems so scary to folks. And it seems like, you know, some kind of marketing sales kind of, you know, their connotation to that. And it's not that outright. You can't get through a program without knowing somebody. Somebody had to sign off. And by the way, it was more than somebody. There were some bodies, there were several bodies that had to sign off. So you know your site supervisor, the director of whatever site you were in, um, the your your university supervisor. Um, most of us had a doctoral supervisor at some point who's already gone through a master's program and is connected. Even if each one of those people give you one name, shoot, that's four right there. That's four right there. I want to tell you something too. We actually don't have recruiting practices at our practice. We do not recruit. It's maybe a spiritual thing for me. Maybe it's an energetic thing. I really believe build it and they will come. And we have multiple people who reach out to us every single week um, saying, hey, I heard about your site. I came across your website. I love the work that it looks like you're doing over there. I would love to talk about the possibility of joining your practice so taking that initiative to reach out to various private practices even if it's those four or whatever kind of you know setting you want to go in even if it's those four people that i just identified and you ask them each for at least one name and they're probably going to give you more than one name that's four different emails right there that you can send you can also do old school look a lot of us are old school pick up the phone and send an email you know or make a phone call and follow it up with an email Um, And I really love the ones that say, you know, I would love to talk more about, you know, my experience. If you don't have a lot of experience, then you don't have to send a resume yet. You could say, you know, would you be, you know, would you be open to my sending a resume to review? That's something that I've heard recently from folks. I was like, oh, that was kind of nice. They didn't just slam me with a resume. They asked permission for that, you know, and so do you have any and if I give them a no They'll say, do you have any recommendations of other practices? Ask them that, you know, that you that you know of that might be hiring um, or that would be good for me to connect with. So, yeah, put yourself out there a little bit. You don't have to go door knocking. You know, um, I don't mean that old school, but yeah, just using your network of people that you already know. You did not get this far and it might not feel like you're very far, but you have a master's degree, Candace. You just graduated. And there are people that, you know, that have signed off that said, hey, Candace is legit. She's legit. She can enter this field. You know, it's so
0: interesting, because as I think about uh, what I feel like was a very fortunate experience in my internship and then compare it to. uh some other experiences I've had. Yeah, let's get into that. (laughs) So, um, and I only bring this up because I've heard such similar stories from supervisees, you know, who um, for a minute, I thought I was like the the house for wayward counselors who had had a bad supervisor because like we were all processing the same trauma over and over again, you know, where there's a supervisor who is detached or who's hypercritical. Um, so this a little bit of a deviation, but I'm curious, especially for counselors who have any sort of historically marginalized identity, what advice would you give in terms of vetting supervisors, knowing how sideways it can go?
1: Mm. Well, first of all, call me. (laughs) <laughs> and second of all, second of all, you ask your supervisors the exact same things that that we were just talking about. Identify your values. Um ask them as one of the questions I like to ask is how do you sit with difference? Mm, mhm. 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 How do you sit with difference? I, and then use that skill that you learned in graduate school and in your internship of sitting in silence give them the space to answer that question i don't want to say honestly but give let that space you know help answer the question let that silence sit and again if they if they've thought about it enough they can answer that question with some level of ease, I don't want to say super easily, but at least a a level of um, reflection that will be evident in their response. So how do you sit with difference? Um, You know, this is something to me that's really important as, um, you know, as a, a, a brown woman, right? Whatever your identities are that are important to you um and even if they're not your identities right how do you fit with difference i want i you know i am a i am a straight white cisgender woman and i want to make sure that you know after they answer that question you, or you can do it as your lead in hey i'm a straight white cisgender woman and i um it's really important to me to be highly skilled or expand my skill set in working with people from um populations or with demographics that aren't necessarily the same as mine. And so I would like a lot of support, you know, from my supervisor in that realm. How do you sit with difference? I think that's a great
0: question. I mean, because it captures so many of the potential red flags, right? Just to name, how do you sit, period? (laughs) You know, when you... (laughs) When you encounter something that you actually need to reflect on, what does reflection look like? And then certainly when there is a potential aspect of
1: different levels of privilege, you know, like. It- Which we all have. I have mine as well. I've mentioned my father's a physician, you know, I grew up with with financial access and, and I had to learn how to sit with differences in those ways as well. I mean, even your question alone is a great question for, for me and my privileged identity of, okay, I got to pay rent, you know, how am I going to make that happen? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that is something that sadly, you know, I'm hearing more stories about as well of people not having the best um, supervisory experiences and not necessarily being able to use their internship sites as a place that they can go to. And so I want to kind of piggyback on that for a second, where um, you also did not graduate by yourself. (laughs) You have colleagues who had, some of whom hopefully had, even if it's just a couple of folks, had really good internship experiences. And so asking them about it, connect with their sites, you know, ask your colleagues, say, hey, would you, would, would you mind if I connected with your supervisor, you know, and had a chat with them? Can you put in a good word for me? Um, you know, is it okay if, if I say that you referred me, you know, however, whatever your relationship is with that person, um, say, I'd really love to reach out to them. Is it okay, Candice, if I say that you recommended that I reach out? I've had many emails in that way. And then it does make me say, hey, Lamar, or hey, Tommy, or you know, hey, Lila, these are folks that are not practice right now. Um, you know, what do you know about so and so? You know, oh, they're great. You know, you know, I would only send them over. I would only recommend, you know, a superstar over to you. Okay, great. You know, so use your network of colleagues who are also in um, a similar position as you, um, as far as having recently graduated, you know, people. You know, people, that's what I really want to stress.
0: It's so interesting because when I'm thinking about and hopefully this had more to do with my own personal baggage than really the educational system as a whole. But when I think about um, what made it hard or what made these options of ask your site supervisor or connect with your peer group, your cohort, what the things that made that not even on my radar whatsoever Um Another piece was this sort of competitiveness that was fostered. I feel like Um, maybe not as overtly in the program, but a little bit in the program that I was in master student and how, um, how antithetical competition is to connection.
1: Oh gosh. Yes.
0: (laughs) So if we walk it back even further into these master's programs, what do you see as being some of the main barriers to people? I mean, this could be like a way bigger question than we could ever answer in a few minutes. But the main barriers may to connection.
1: We'll start there in these master's programs. Yeah. So let's go there because I teach master's students. Um you know, and at the university as well, as far as as an adjunct professor, and so I've, I I hear some stories, and I think I hear them more because I'm adjunct, and it's a little bit safer for for those stories to be shared in front of me. Um, and so I I feel honored to have heard some of these stories, but also somewhat horrified, if I'm honest. Um, and I've taught at a few places, so I'm not I'm not pointing fingers at anyone in particular. Um, but across the board, there there is this idea that. Look, I'm going to go back even further into the multicultural counseling classes. Outdated term, um, but that's what they're called nonetheless. Okay. You know, it's not called culturally centered counseling practices. (laughs) It's not called that. Uh, But, you know, I digress. So let's go back to that. Those classes, I have found, are generally geared towards white students. And those classes, Ironically, they're taken usually early on, generally in the summer that the students start. So it's summer class. I think is too short on its own, okay, for that course. Um, but even for the longer term courses that are, are full semester long, they're geared towards white students. They're geared generally towards white, straight, able-bodied students. Okay, so in that you are already, we are already seeing a divide happening. Of an us and them, there's already this setup early on in their training of um, this mindset of we have to teach people how to think differently. But the irony is that it's set up to other many of the students in the classroom, or sadly, some of the students in the classroom, depending on how how you know diverse that classroom setup is. And so right away, we're creating this this split. And and what I'm also seeing is that if you don't have a professor in there who is highly, highly skilled and comfortable and has a significant amount of experience in teaching that particular class and leading those discussions, then it gets very surfacey, very, very surfacey. I tend to teach um, some fall classes that come right after students have come out of those classes and I go in pretty hard. And in my courses, um, I'm not teaching the multicultural class right now or haven't in, in a little bit, but it's certainly interwoven in almost every single conversation that we have throughout the curriculum. And what I'm finding is that there's this level of discomfort that people have and that they're now if we go into metacognition, they're uncomfortable with the discomfort that they have. And there's a sense of entitlement that comes with that discomfort. And so they, you know, what I'm seeing is, how dare you make me feel uncomfortable, professor? How dare you do that? Now, that changes over time because I sit with it. There's that word again. Um, and I sit with their discomfort and their, uh, their discomfort doesn't make me uncomfortable. By the way, that's a life lesson across the board that can be taken to many areas of life, their discomfort doesn't make me uncomfortable because I refuse to, to buy into it. Right. So, but I think many professors do buy into that. And, and so then there's this idea of we have to keep you comfortable with the learning process, pat, pat. And I know this is really hard. And then they'll do one little thing and you go, oh, that was so brave. Clap, 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 clap. <laughs> and so it's like this, that to me is actually really aligned with the competition. It's like I have to achieve and and any discomfort around achieving is okay with me at the expense of everybody else. And um, and I have to get the A plus and you, professor, have to give me that A plus. Um, and I'm not willing to be uncomfortable enough to get that A plus in the emotional sense. But, you know, I'll try to write a good paper. It's It just gets really, really twisty. And I know this is kind of a, a tangent of what you're talking about. But I, I see it in the curriculum where people feel a certain amount of um. Competition educationally, um, but not really willing to go through a different kind of discomfort for it. It's like I'll go through the discomfort of the long hours of like, I understand I have to spend time to write this paper, or I understand I have to spend time to write this project. And it's like, oh, I am working so hard to do all of this, but then like really digging in to some of the meat in the curriculum. I'm vegan, so I don't really like that word, but really (laughs) digging into like the real like juicy part of the curriculum, they're not doing it. It's more like checking the boxes. And I'm seeing a lot of professors perpetuating that idea of like just checking these boxes. And I'm going on a tangent, but like these little boxes on their own. Are, are just that person is centered in the box. And it's, it, there's not this like, Let's think about how this is affecting other students in the class. Let's make this a more collaborative learning environment. Let's make this a more communal space because for me, by the way, I would have loved to learn more about neurodivergence, but no, 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 we didn't get to that because we were too busy talking about how, you know, white privilege was this thing that the students were uncomfortable with. And we had to spend all this time focusing on them. I learned essentially zero in my master's or even in my doctoral level classes. And I had fantastic professors, by the way. And and yet there was not the sense of community that happened in those classes whatsoever. And because they were early on classes for me, that transitioned um, or that transferred throughout the program where there was this siloed Sense in the program where I did not feel connected to my campus, I did not feel connected to my program, and it started because I did not feel connected to my colleagues because we were not in a collaborative learning environment at all.
0: Fast forward from that point, maybe in thinking about being um, a student of color, I mean, because I definitely I feel like similar to what you're saying is that the the real disconnections and uh struggles seem to happen most around race you know um in these classes so you know i've certainly heard what you've said i'm you know i have several historically marginalized minoritized identities i didn't learn a damn thing in these classes and then beyond that i also felt like, I was named the official spokesperson, spokesperson for fill-in-the-blank identity, and so I'm carrying the load of educating uh, my generally white counterparts about fill-in-the-blank identity. So for a student who has had that experience, then feels kind of disenfranchised and disconnected from the program moving forward, uh, what does the healing work look like for that?
1: Are we talking about in the education system or are we talking I think about? In the individual?
0: Like what, what can a person who has had that experience do to work with it, through it, like put those pieces back if it's possible? Like, what does
1: it look like? I don't know that it's really completely their work to do. You know, it's more of a systemic work and. I mean, that's why I built this practice was was that right there is that it It started not just in the classroom, but, you know, it manifests these systemic values and just way of thinking this competitive thing that you're talking about that you saw in your master's program. Like, and it really all of this conversation stems from trying to get this next job before the next person. Right. And how that can become a barrier to you know, talking with your colleagues because maybe you don't want to tell them about that job or maybe you don't want to tell them about a job in your agency because you want to make sure you secure yours first, right? And there's a systemic issue there. And so I actually built this practice with the idea of there's enough to go around. And so there might not be, well, let me just go ahead and tell you, there aren't many places out there that have that kind of um, mentality. But they're starting. I mean, that it's becoming more commonplace. I'm hearing more practices saying we want that, but we've been established for a few years and we've kind of been doing things this way, but we don't want to keep doing things this way. But we don't even know what we're doing that's promoting that or if we're promoting that, right? So, you know, when we're dating, Oftentimes with therapists, especially, we look for someone, you know, one of the common things that we'll say or that we've heard people say is that, you know, we want someone who, you know, growth is important to them. And, you know, where they don't want to stay the same, where they just want to grow as a person over time and they want to evolve as a person over time. I think, you know, when you're talking with practices that you're interested in joining and asking them what their where their gaps are asking them what they're doing, where they want to, you know, how they're filling those or what steps they're taking to kind of shade those gaps in or to fill those gaps. Um, because they don't necessarily have to be perfect. Just like we're not going to, we don't want to have necessarily the perfect partner, but we want someone who is doing the work right Who to, to, to fill those gaps and to grow and expand, <clears throat> losing my voice a little bit. Um, and so looking for that, you know, but as far as the, you know, you, you can't make somebody be something that they don't want to be or don't feel the need to be or don't feel compelled to be. And so, you know, I, I don't have an answer completely as far as a quick fix to that. Um, if, you, if we don't have places yet that are where we want them to be, At least look for places that are that are taking steps to get there aggressively, aggressively taking steps to get there. You know, are they in their own form of therapy? And for me, that means like, are they getting some kind of consultation? Right. So I'm actually starting to get private practices reaching out to me now to do evaluation and consultation for them like, hey, we know you have your own brand and you do your own thing, but we really like a lot of the things that you're doing and we want to figure out how to incorporate that. We realize that we have different, you know, demographics and different identities and we have different areas of privilege. Um, but we really like what you're, what you're doing. And, and we want to figure out, you know, at the very least ways that we're hopefully not causing harm, you know? So, That's my answer for now. Hopefully it can change in time. Hopefully it can change in time.
0: Well, last question. Transformative book. Transformative book. Tell me what you mean. So Fair. That wasn't actually a sentence. That was just a series of two words. So what is a book that has made a huge impact
1: on you? Hmm. I am, well, the one that I'm writing has made a huge <laughs> impact on me um a, about belonging in terms of just you know, when we r- write, we gain clarity. so i I have my own belonging model. So that's one um that as as it as I'm writing it, more and more is being revealed. Um, but that's just for my own personal thing. But one of my favorite books is called Inclusion Revolution. The Essential Guide to Dismantling Racial Inequity in the Workplace. And it's a book by Daisy Auger-Dominguez, who actually has an incredible TED talk on this topic. Um, You know, it's specifically in there, she's mentioning race in the title, but it actually can transfer into, um, you know, across demographics fantastic, fantastic read. I actually am not into audiobooks so much. But for that particular one, I love the audio. Um, because the author herself is reading it and, um, and just has, I just love her inflection and the passion with which she delivers the information. It's infectious. And, um, you know, it's one of those that makes you want to get up and rethink everything immediately right then and start taking action. It's inspiring at the same time, but it's based on real world um, stories that she has and insight. She's worked for Google. She's worked for huge um, places as a, as their diversity officer. And she's fantastic.
0: Well, I will make sure we have a link to that in the resources. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But I am so appreciative of your time today. And I, I feel like I'm hopeful that this Episode will reach the right ears, you know. That there's like someone who is really st- I'm about to sound like a tele evangelist. <laughs> there's someone out there who needs healing. I save them. <laughs> no I'm just stop there. I just hope the right people hear this, you know, because it's such a tender time when you're looking for work and uh, yeah. trying to put into practice skills that are potentially very new and. Yeah, so thankful both that you were doing this
1: work and that you took time to chat today. Thank you so much for inviting me, Candace. I'm truly honored and thank you for the work that you're doing. Love this time with you.
0: Well, that does it for our show today, folks, but we would love to keep this conversation going. So if you have had some workplace horror stories or maybe some workplace wins, then leave us a comment or send us a message. You can find us on Instagram at Beyond Therapy Podcast. And also, if you would like some NBCC approved continuing education credit, and who doesn't, especially if you're hearing this before June, then head on over to www.beyondtherapy.thinkific.com to learn about our individual courses as well as our membership program, which is going to be released in April. This is Dr. Candice Creaseman-Mowry signing off. Beyond Therapy is brought to you by Creasman Counseling, mental wellness for all. Visit www.creasman-counseling.com for more information. Thanks for listening.